You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live Portraits, featuring intimate, in-depth interviews with Black Hollywood stars and influencers. Black Hollywood Live, Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live Portraits, Dario Kristen. Hey everybody, you're watching Black Hollywood Live Portraits. I'm your host, Dario Kristen. Here in the studio today joining me is Courtney Stewart. Hello everybody. And DJ Jesse J. What up? And our special guest today, you know him, he's a award-winning writer, actor, director, producer. I he does mean, everything. He, he, he does everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Ruben Santiago Hudson is in the house with us today. Woo! Thank you for having me. Thank you. You know, welcome, I mean, I, I was funny because you just have done so many TVs and TV and movie shows. I was just watching American Gangster. I was watching Castle and, and Law and Order. You are just a man. You've all, done everything. All in the same day. All, you know, all in the same day. <laughs> yeah, I've been fortunate, man. Very, very fortunate. And congratulations. You recently won an award for directing. Uh, yes, uh, the Obie Award for directing the panel lesson, August Wilson's panel lesson in New York off Broadway. Oh, and August Wilson, you seem to be a huge fan of his. And yeah, that was my brother. That was my brother. He's a good man. He uh, he um, he he created a body of work for all of us uh, that will be left here for, for for generations after we're gone. I agree. You know, so he's an amazing man and probably the most profound and prolific playwright in the last three decades. I definitely agree with you there. I hope I, you know. I hope the younger generation really gets the chance to know more about him as well. As, we're we're going to see to it. We, we have August Wilson monologue competition all over the nation, and yeah. we bring kids into New York, the finalists, and we take them to Broadway shows. We take them around New York. Uh, we're educating in schools. I'm getting ready to do all ten of his plays, archive them as dramatic readings uh, rec- uh, with outstanding casts, including Felicia Rashad, Leslie Uggams, Wendell wow. Pierce, Harry Lennox, <laughs> Keith David, um, myself, Stephen McKinley Henderson. We have 50 actors. Uh, we're waiting for Denzel to clear his schedule, Jeffrey Wright to clear his schedule, um, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, that's Why an amazing ensemble cast. I mean, I'm like, you got everybody. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and one day when I get this Harlem Renaissance project up, there's many series of them, you're going to hear all them names again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You're the man. That's all I got to say. I'm like, I don't you even know. That. Who, like, yeah, on that note. Drop like, the mic. Yeah, exactly. The interview is over. Exactly. Like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, what are you guys doing? But once again, thank you for joining us today. I know that you grew up in, in Lackawanna, New York. Yes, I did. And now, what was it like being a a kid growing up there, especially with the African-American and Puerto Rican ancestry, and you know, history? Like, how did that happen? Like, what what was your experience like growing up there with that? It was amazing. It was amazing. You know, even to, to go a step further, if you saw the movie Lackawanna Blues, I was yeah. raised in a rooming house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was like me coming home was like coming home to like an amusement park. <laughs> so many characters, so many stories, so much history, uh, so many broken promises, so many uh, broken dreams. And they looked at me as a person to kind of fulfill some of their dreams that they couldn't fulfill. So uh, my whole quest in life after they brainwashed me and made me thought that it was possible to, to be something in life, uh, my whole quest was to to not disappoint them. So okay. I went on, you know, and re- received a, you know, two master's degrees and, and an honorary doctorate, and I went on to to work as hard as I could possibly uh, work to to do them proud, you know. And so that's that's, and I'm still working to do it, you know. 
But Lackawanna was, man, you know, in the winter was a tremendous amount of snow, <laughs> five, six, seven feet of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could play all the time. We'd go out. In those days, we'd just go out and play. And when the street lights come on, be in front of the house. <laughs> right. So we didn't have computers and we didn't have things like that. We played. We did social interaction. And that helped me to become animated as a human being and tell stories and listen to stories. And, and now I'm an actor and a writer and director. But uh, it, it was the best uh, that any child could have. Everybody had a job in the steel plant. Everybody had a new car and a conch. The uh, conch. And, wow. uh, and so I saw images and people that were very positive to me. Uh, growing up there, I mean, I, I kind of grew up in a similar uh, type of environment. What, how, for you, what was like the first step where you knew uh, entertainment is where I want to be? Was it that you had had an experience with different characters that day or, you know, outside with your friends playing in the seven feet of snow, pretending you're a superhero. Like, what was it? Was it the acting? Was it or more so the writing or wanting to build and create the world? That was It was in a basketball game, getting my jump shot blocked three times. <laughs> I, I, in a row, I figured I better figure out something else to do with my life because I wasn't going to be a ball player. Um, you, you never know. <clears throat> It chooses you. It snatches mm-hmm. you and it won't let you go sometime. And, and, and the people around me that continued to advise me when I was in college and told me that I did have something very special as uh, in the entertainment field and, and more so in, in the field of, of, of or the profession of storytelling, that I had a lot of stories and I needed to share them. And um, in, in the mixed heritage, you know, uh, African-American as well as Boricua as Puerto, Puerto Rican, I got to experience both of those cultures uh, intimately. And my father took me to Puerto Rico several times, and he refused to let me uh, not relish that experience of being Boricua. And so uh, even though my swagger looks black, you know, my heart is black and Puerto Rican. I like that. So, uh, Best of both worlds. Yeah, so it was just, it was rewarding. But I, I didn't know until like my sophomore year of college. I had been acting every year mm-hmm. in a production, but I didn't know that would be my life. And then mm-hmm. in college, uh, a professor of mine and a distinguished writer named Lofton Mitchell, who wrote Bubbling Brown Sugar, uh, was one of my advisors. And he said, boy, just drop everything for a minute and focus on this this acting thing. You got something that's special. He says, I've been on Broadway several times. What you got is rare. Try it one year and let everything go. And I did. How hard was that for you? Very hard. Because, you know, my courting days with me having like like many, many girlfriends had to stop. Me having a basketball game every day had to stop. Me being a disc jockey at the radio station had to stop. And I had to focus in on learning the classics, learning uh, how to speak, how to how to walk, how to dance, how to move, how to sing. Mm-hmm. And... uh and it uh, it paid off. It's, it's still paying off. I'm still trying to get paid on it. You, know? <laughs> you are here. Well, you, you seem well. to be doing a pretty good job at it. <laughs> you have arrived. <laughs> you have arrived. Now, with with your education, I know you mentioned that you've gotten several different degrees. Was that important to you to always still have, even though you were pursuing acting, and always to continue to kind of educate yourself in the world of acting and, and theater and, and 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 film? Was that important? Something it, important to you? Every everything else has an expiration date on it. Yeah. My career as an actor, my career as a director, my, my knowledge in, 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 in thirst for knowledge and hunger for knowledge has no expiration date. It goes on till I'm dead. I will be learning and, and studying from you as well as older people than me and younger than you uh, because I don't know it all and I don't think I know it all yeah. and I'm always looking to learn. Hmm. And that's the first thing I say to my actors in the first day of rehearsal. I don't have all the answers, but we're going to find as many as we can together. But if I don't know them, I'm going to find out how we're going to get that answer. So uh, what keeps me young in my mind and in my heart is that thirst for knowledge, that wanting to learn. And then having degrees as a person of color in this country, yeah. that's the one thing. Can't nobody lock up from me. That's true. And, you know, they can't, you know, this, you know, no one can take it from me. And so even though, you know, I do have a, a lot of street still 
still in me and I'm never going to get rid of my street. But what I'm going to continue to do is add on to that street quality, add on to it with an education. And, and sometimes when people say, well, you know, you, you, you can't even talk. You know, I might be in a, in a bar and with some distinguished alum and they might be saying, <laughs> well, you know, wow, Rube, you still talk like you, you in the hood. And I said, I'm always going to be in the hood in my heart. But what I did is I added on the Master of Arts, the Master of Fine Arts and the Doctorate. Yeah. So I can, and if you want me to pull that out, and we can get very distinguished. Right. right. He's like, bam. I said, but I'm not going there, man. I said, you know, I don't have to put on airs. The knowledge comes out. Just listen. Yeah, on that one. Now, your first film, Coming to America. First one. First one. You played a street hustler, I believe. Yes, I did. And what was it like to be on a movie with such a great ensemble cast? I mean, you had Arsenio Hall. You had Eddie Murphy. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Iconic. Eric LaSalle. You know, I mean, Samuel L. J- Samuel Jackson. Jackson. You well, know, you had uh, John Amos. John Amos. You had Madge Sinclair. You had James Earl Jones. Yeah. What it was for me was, you know, I came in an audition for the Louis Anderson role, and they thought I didn't look funny enough. I mean, every every film and every job uh, has a story to it. And they didn't, but John Landis was convinced that I needed to be in this film, the yeah. director. And so they wrote this little role. You know, yo, yo man, you want to buy some toothbrushes? I got a hell of a hair driver here too, check it out. You know, so he wrote this little role and, and it was supposed to be one day's work. It was end up being four days work because Mr. Murphy decided not, not come out of his trailer. And I kept saying, stay in your trailer, Mr. Murphy. Because I think I was getting $500 a day and I never made that kind of money for day's work. So, you know, those, those one $500 turns into four $500. So I was like, stay in your trailer. <laughs> now, what was his reasoning for staying in the trailer? I, just... I don't know and I didn't pursue it. I just kept praying that he right. continued to stay You're like, you're like let's, just, let's just make sure he stays in there but he finally came out and we finally did Damn the toothbrush it. scene and, and uh, it was a memorable scene in a lot of people's minds mm-hmm. how do you feel looking back at that now because I mean that movie is like it's classic it's, like classic it's iconic yeah. Yeah. how does it feel to see that yourself and realize what I mean what that all means to us at this point in time like it that it lasted it's still lasting it'll continue to last forever as like a classic especially for black people well, I, I'm, I think it is a classic and, and it's an iconic film and I, I'm proud to have been a part of it and you know and, and I look around and a lot of those people we were all peers and friends Sam and, and uh, um uh, all the people that were in the film, Vondi Curtis, we were all friends. We were all bumming around New York, you yeah. know, uh, catching jobs and doing jobs. You remember, Sam wasn't famous then. That's yeah. true. Not until yeah. after he went to France with uh, Jungle Fever. And mm. he, bro- he broke out then. We were all scuffling. We were all putting our change together to get chicken wings and 40s. You know, so it was <laughs> like, you know, and to see us all gathered there and, and uh, to all pursue careers and be successful is a blessing. You know, so it feels good. Awesome. And James Earl Jones was on the film, and I know that he, you guys share kind of a similar theatrical theater background. Mm-hmm. Um, did he give you any words of wisdom or advice? I, I know that you were a fan of his as well. Is there, some, is there something that he told you as you were kind of entering into this craft? No, I continue to be a fan of, of Mr. Jones. You know, he, he, he broke down a lot of barriers for us in the classical theater as well as in just uh, dramatic theater. Uh, period uh, and integrity and what he stands for. So no, I didn't even see him on that film. All I saw was the back of my trailer in, the, in those three girls that, that got in the, in the in the pool with with Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Right. And we shared a trailer together, and I was just trying to peek as much as I could in in the, in the their side of the trailer, you know. And that's all I saw. I didn't see any of those people. I didn't see Sam. I didn't see anybody. I did my days, and I was at the time working at the Negro Ensemble Company. And at night, I was on stage. Hmm. What are some of the uh, maybe uh, kind of odd jobs that you had while you were pursuing the craft at the beginning? Oh man, I was a I was a janitor. I cleaned toilets at the recreation center, uh, construction. I drove truck, uh, demolition, um, 
uh, I was a messenger boy carrying microfilm from one bank to another. Just, you know, I was just trying to catch. I was trying to make sure that I took care of my family, took care of myself, and that I kept my nose clean, you know, because you can always uh, fall into the wrong things. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure that I didn't disappoint. And then after that, you kind of started to really build your your resume of of doing television shows. Um, You started doing, you guessed, appeared on Amen, Life Goes On, uh, Another World, Dear John, New York, NYPD Blue. And then you landed the big role, kind of the bigger role in 1990 on Law and Order. What was it like kind of landing on this show that was was actually, they were saying it was going to be, at the time, one of the most looked after show like they really wanted they had a lot of anticipation for this show what was it like to be a part of that I, I, you know I, th- I with law and order i came on as you know i just did a guest star and i just ended up doing six different roles i think i played i mean six different uh episodes but i played the same guy in four episodes yeah. and they liked me and had me play two other guys you know <laughs> so i was like well, what happened to the guy right. i was playing <laughs> you know so but you know so but they never gave me a contract so so it was a great place to go to work but um, in, in the field of acting, like I talk about expiration dates, every job has expiration date, and we're looking for the next one as we're working, the one we're working now. Yeah. And so I just continued. One day I looked up and saw that extensive resume and said, wow, I did that? I don't even realize <laughs> it because you, you're constantly just working and working and working and trying to build a body of work. You know, some, some of the young kids come out here and they look for one hit and become a star, and that's what they're known the rest of their life. That's J.J. Walker. That's so-and-so. That's what they are. And I never wanted to be known as one thing. Yeah. And that's the reason I do classical theater, and that's the reason that I write, direct, and with the blessings that God has given me I want to share. I want to disseminate as much as possible to as many people as possible and, to, and make sure that I challenge myself. And they obviously liked you and loved you because they kept calling you back for different roles. Is there something that you think is kind of like your unique technique that makes you stand out from others that want that uh, that had them want you to come back continuously for different roles? Well, first of all, I don't waste their time. When they say action, I know my you words. <laughs> I hit my mark, you know, and, and I mean what I say. So, but the, the thing, more than anything, uh, I think people like to bet on the winner. Yeah, and and I, I just have been very lucky that when I go and do something, it makes them money, it makes them look good, and and it makes me money, and, and hopefully I look good in it, and then I just keep on going and try to. You have to you have to be uh, ac- accountable to, to something, and, and you have to want something. What I always want, acting is acting, whether I'm on film, TV, or stage. I love stage most. But I'm always searching for the same thing in every role, reality, the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing at anything, any attitude that they might want me to play. I'm always going to go two, three levels deeper because if I'm not a human being, if I'm not somebody that you, you can look at anything I've done and say, I like I could have a beer with that guy. Yeah. Or if I ran into that guy at Popeye's, I'd say, man, I know you. <laughs> you know, so it's that reality where you never see me uh, uh, front, as they say, or faking it. Yeah. I'm going for what's real. Yeah, and you, I mean, it comes across in your roles. I mean, you've played detectives, lieutenants, attorneys. Um, is that something, it seems to be a lot of leadership type of roles. Is that something that's also instilled in you? Like, is that who you are outside of, of, of acting? I, I'm, a, I'm a leader. I'd like to fancy myself a leader of sorts. But no, that's what Hollywood sees in actors of color. Yeah. It's two things that they easily accept. Anger and authority. Humanity is what's difficult for them to accept. How many times have you seen me hug my wife and my child? Rarely in TV and film. Come to see me on stage, and you see me do it every time I'm on stage. It's my wholeness that keeps me going to the stage, keeping me complete. In TV or film, in Hollywood, they pay me to play an attitude. I refuse to settle. I go deeper. But if there's a wife or family, I have to give the illusion in my mind, in my characterization, that there's somewhere else I'm going. You'll see me 
buttoned up when I'm finishing meeting. You'll see me always, you know, very seldom am I scraggly, yeah. you know, even if I'm playing a bum. Yeah. I'm together because I'm accountable to something else. And I bring that myself, that quality, and, and that kind of depth and that kind of uh, accountability is, is, is what's important. And a lot of actors forget that. Why do you think that humanity has not been something over these years, over the years you've been in the business, that is not as apparent as we would maybe like it to be yeah. at this yeah, point? But, but because we, we're not holding up the measuring stick. So the people that are holding up the measuring stick, it's hard for us to measure up as human beings completely. Now we're on a deep subject. Yeah. I know we don't get this deep. <laughs> no, I love but, it. That's what we do it, here. That's it, what we it, do it, here. It, it'll it'll, it'll get further when you look at what happened to Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't see that whole Picture. human being yeah. in that trial, in that, in, in that man that got out that car. I refuse to even name him because he didn't see that whole human being, that brother, that child that possible father one day, that uncle, and we'll start crying talking about it. He didn't see that because of the images and the things that have been projected to him that have not been whole. He's seen the thug, the cop, the mayor, the lawyer, you know, but he has not seen the father, the husband, the son. That's rare for us. And if you really stop and think about it, go to your television today and see how many times you see a a brother showing that. And it's mainly men. So they keep us confined in this image of who we are. You know, and so I refuse to settle. I'm not going to settle. And that makes me a troublemaker. So you're saying that's why you prefer doing stage shows, because you have a little more control of being able to, like you said, measure up. You are the one holding the measuring stick. Right. Would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. But but even if you look at Castle, they never thought Castle would actually have a relationship with Beckett when that first thing came out. Yeah. yeah but I looked right. at her when I gave her orders. When she walked out of the room, I felt a certain way about what I had to do and say to her. That meant relationship. Mm-hmm. I could have stopped it right and get, get out of my office and you do what I say. Right. Yeah. Blank. But I said, get out of my office and do what I say. She turned and I say, so that means why does he feel that way? I care. Why does he care? So then the writers, good writers see that and they start writing more. Yeah. But why don't they assume that from the beginning? Yeah. And that's why I write Lackawanna Blues. To see salt of the earth people whole. They may be lacking here and lacking there, but in, in humanity, they're not lacking anything. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have to control our destiny in that, in that respect. And, that's interesting. And controlling your destiny, do you feel a responsibility um, within the African American and Latin community to pick certain roles that you choose to perform um is that has that ever really been something that's super really important to you as, as as far as your choices in this in this craft yes absolutely absolutely i mean everybody i play is not gonna be a good guy and everybody i play is not gonna be an example for you but uh, like look at shaft but um or but what you will find is i know that guy and there's a purpose for the wrong that I do. If I, you see me as a wrong person, and I'm doing it for something that maybe even the writer and director don't even know I'm doing it for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because, but I have to believe something in, my, in myself and hopefully exude that in my performance. Did you say something deeper to that guy? Why is he robbing? Why is he doing this? Because we have robbers in our, in, our, in our families and in our cultures. We have junkies yeah, in course. our families and in our cultures. And we have Everybody. doctors. And we have doctors and lawyers. Yeah. So, but what drives them? Something is driving them. Even the worst human being has some finer qualities. That's true. Absolutely. What, what character yeah. uh, out of any of the work that you've done has kind of stuck with you or kind of taught you something about your life? I know that you I – lo- I love the way that you go into the character and wanting to give them that completeness. But is there any character that kind of – as you fell into that, that person, that role, 
kind of changed your life mentally, the way that you think and look at everything? Well, you know, I, I've done over 100 plays. And each play, I gather something from that role, and I give something to that role. And the, the ones that I've created and developed, uh, when writers start writing for me after a while, like when August wrote Canewell, he originally wrote it for another actor who wasn't available. And then all of a sudden, he, I started doing it. And he said to me, man, all I can hear is your voice. And he went further with it. So each character I play, I'm learning from that character because yeah. it, that's something that's sprung from that writer. Mm-hmm. So you're learning something about that writer and the way he thinks. And then I have to add something to it myself. This is how I think. You know, and so, but Canewell in August Wilson's Seven Guitars is the closest, I think, because I spent the, uh, two years doing that role, uh, is the closest to me really fulfilling Ruben. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the tough guy, the vulnerable one, uh, all, you know, the poet and the lover, uh, the gangster and, and, and uh, you know, everything in that role. So that's a dynamite role. If any, anybody wants to pick up that play, Seven Guitars, August Wilson. And you won a, a Tony for that award, correct? Yes, I did win a Tony Award for that role. And how did it feel to be recognized for your work in, in that arena, especially as a Latino and African-American actor? It felt great. You know, it felt great when your peers uh, and people that come to see your work uh, give you accolades. It always feels good. But that can't be why you do the work. Yeah. Uh, More than anything, I felt proud that I could say to my mama, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, thank you. You know, I hope 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 this makes you feel good. And more than anything, that was the most important thing that happened. And that's the first thing I said in my speech. God was first. And then I said my mother. And, was, you know, and then I went to Lloyd Richards, the director, who was another icon. And But that was the most rewarding. It, was, it wasn't it was about me because I couldn't have did it myself. I couldn't have done it. I did it on the shoulders of a lot of people. And what is it about August Wilson's writing that you really love and enjoy and to perform his work? And, 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 and to say it plainly, he loved us. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, yeah. and I, pl- I do a lot of plays. Yeah. And every <laughs> yeah. playwright don't love me. Right. He loved, like, as they say in the hood, he loved your stanky draws. <laughs> he loved people of color. He loved his mother, and he loved his sisters and brothers, and they, it comes out in the plays. Whether you're a good guy or a bad guy or doing bad things, you see that he's doing it for a reason. And he made all the men kings in their own domain, and all the women queens in their own domain, whether they're quiet, when they speak, it's with dignity. Yeah. And and I said, who else loves, love, love, you know, nobody, no, no other writer loved me like that. I love the passion that you put behind it. And that's, I mean, no. I want to go out and get all his plays and read them right now. Well, you know? in a minute, right. you will be able to hear them and access that's, them, but you I should still wait. pick them up. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Now, was it important for you to also kind of have a balance of, of television roles and theater uh, in your career? Let's be quite, let's be quite honest. You know, I need to do a certain amount of TV and film to afford to do theater. Yeah. I don't get, I don't, yeah. I don't make a living doing theater. Yeah. I have a life doing theater. Yeah. Uh, and people mix the two up. Mm-hmm. You, you do what you need to do to make a living. Don't compromise your integrity. But you also have to do what you need to do to have a life. When that means who you surround yourself with and the work that you do outside of what you have to do. That's your life. And when you look around what a person surrounds himself with, whether it's artifacts or other human beings, that's their life. That's yeah. what's important to them. And so I don't mix them up. And you mentioned you've done over 100 plays. What has been your favorite production to actually perform? It's always the last one I've done, you know. Uh, the last thing I did as an actor was uh, The Winter's Tale, Shakespeare. So that was my favorite so far. But uh, I'm getting ready to do August Wilson's one-man show that he wrote for himself. I'm doing that off-Broadway in New York beginning November 2nd at the Signature Theater Company in New York City. 
he wrote a play called How I Learned What I Learned. And he performed it twice at two different venues. And then he got ill, and, he, and two weeks before he died, he called me and asked me would I do it. And I said no. I said, you wrote it for you. And he said, you're going to tell me no? <laughs> you're my brother, and I'm, I'm not going to be here one day. You're going to wake up, and I'm asking you this. I said, who else did you ask to do it? He said, I'm asking you. After you do it, they can have it, but I want you to do it. And I was hoping, that, and then he passed two weeks later, and I was hoping that people forgot that he asked me, but his wife <laughs> called and said, August wanted you to do this play. And the produ- a producer called and said, we want to do it. Are you in? And I said, yes, I am. And that's a that's a beautiful thing. August, I mean, uh, November second, and it'll run into Christmas. How I learned what I learned. August Wilson. August Wilson. He. That's, I'm excited. I want to. I'm like taking. I'm like. I know. I'm like. I'm writing down, <laughs> making mental notes of the date. I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> but let's let's also talk about the play that you wrote and and start in Lackawanna Blues. So I know that's your baby, and yeah. uh, it, you have. It, Started off as a play, and then it went into a, a, a film, HBO film. Tell us how you decided to actually write that play and, 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 and wanted to tell that story. What, what was your decision in that? Well, I kept telling the story for free. I kept telling the story <laughs> everybody that wanted to hear. Might as well get a check for it, right? I just wanted to t- t- tell. I wanted to, say, I wanted to say thank you to Nanny because she, she had died. And I said, I, you know, and I, and I said to uh, one of her friends when I was interviewing different people because I wanted to know more about her before I came into her life. What about them other 55, 60 years that she had before me. Yeah. And so I was interviewing her oldest friends when they came up from the South. And, and I said, and one, one lady, Miss Carrie, Miss Carrie Jacobs said to me, I said, Miss Carrie, she said, Miss Carrie said, why are you writing this story, son? I said, ma'am, I don't want anybody to ever forget Nanny. And she said, baby, ain't nobody ever going to forget Nanny. Yeah. And I said, wow. But I, I, I said, I, I still got to write it, Miss Carrie. Right. <laughs> so I wrote it, a love letter to her to say thank you. And we did it at the public theater. I was commissioned by George C. Wolf in the public theater to do it. We sold it out for 10 weeks. We, we had to close to let another theater uh, uh, production in. And uh, I, I shut it down and went to do my next job, and 9-11 hit. Oh. And when 9-11 hit, people who had seen the play wanted to bring it to their theaters because they needed someone to say it's going to be all right. And that was Nanny. No matter what your lot in life was, who you were, and what you had done wrong, she would tell you it's going to be all right. And, and for the fans who are listening who may not be as familiar with Nanny, who, could you give a little bit of background for them to know? Nanny, uh, uh, Rachel, Crosby. You. Rachel Crosby is the woman who adopted me when I was a little kid. She was my mother's landlady, and my mother was 21 years old and working at a, at a bar and was leaving me in the room in the little apartment, studio apartment. And Nanny discovered that I was by myself, and so she took me and said, don't you ever leave this baby by himself. And I'm going to keep him while you work. And so my mother thought she had a good thing. And I end up nanny being my mother. That's who I woke up to. That's who cleaned my snotty nose. That's who took me to kindergarten. And that's who spanked my butt when I was wrong. And that became my mother. And my birth mother uh, had a, 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 a really, a really hard life. Uh, went into heroin addiction for 23 years, in and out of jail. So nanny ended up being my keeper, my mother, my best friend, my disciplinarian. She and um, my godmother, uh, Maddie Overton, those two made sure that I stayed straight, stayed on the straight path. You know, so I wrote this movie and I, I was content to keep touring it as a play because I made much more money when I was in control of everything. <laughs> the manager, the star, the writer, the booking agent. And then but when I uh, people just kept pushing, Halle Berry called me into when she won the Oscar to do two performances as a thank you to a lot of her friends who had voted for her and wow. pushed for her to get the Oscar. And we did, I came to L.A. to do just two for Halle, private shows, 100 people a show. 
And good God, <laughs> we went to this little theater on Santa Monica. My manager, Vincent Rincion, and I, and, and we found this spot. And we rented it out, Hallie, and everybody showed up. All the thank yous were, you know, Whoopi and, and uh, Angie Bassett and Sam and Latanya, and everybody showed up. And the word got out. Oprah sent people, ABC sent everybody sent people. So it's huge. And, and before I can get to my car in the parking lot, <laughs> people buy. were saying, <laughs> Can we? Can you come to Sony Lot tomorrow to talk about this? And I was like, I told Vince, I said, I ain't going to my manager. I said, I ain't going nowhere. I got control of this thing. Yeah. He said, Rube, don't be crazy. <laughs> he, he said, you reaching, uh, you know, seven hundred people a night in this movie will reach eighteen, fifteen, twenty, mm-hmm. fifty million people. Will, will get to see how good Nanny was, and that turned it. Was that hard for you to give up that control? Because you just mentioned, like, you were like, I got this. This is mine. Like, w- was it hard for you to even have that conversation with the, with the studio about, you know, that next level for, for Yeah, there's a certain amount of trepidation there. But, you know, uh, I turned it over to, you know, one of my dearest friends, George C. Wolfe, who got it, who yeah. got what was sacred to me. Because we had been friends for, you know, 15 years. So he knew we couldn't tread on Nanny. And he had a mom that he loved tremendously. And he, he got it. So we had to make sure everybody else got it. Yeah. And then our friends came in in, in numbers, Jimmy Smith, Cindy Patha, and, and uh, Jeff Wright, and uh, Carmen Jogo, and all our friends wanted to be a part of it. And, and there you have it, Lackawanna Blues. And then now there's a little difference between the play versus the movie, as you were kind of mentioning. You had In the play, you played all 20 characters. There's about 20-some 20, 20 characters. 20-something yeah. characters. Yeah. And then in the movie, there were actors that were hired to do that. Was was were you involved in picking a lot of those particular spots for the actors to play, or, or how, how much involvement were you in? Well, uh, you, you don't do a whole lot of picking. Jimmy Smith's call you on the phone and say, well, that's true. But I want to be in this. That is very true. I want to be in this. But, uh, yeah, I was instrumental in, you know, I approved every actor. Uh, I let George be the director. He's an amazing director. And I let him be the director, but everything came through me. You know, Rube, this is who I really like. I mean, like he fought for uh, Michael K. Williams, and then I fell in love with Michael K. Williams mm-hmm. uh, to play Jimmy Lee. And then we were looking for somebody to play Freddie Cobbs, and, and they kept saying, we got to get somebody like Ruben. And George said, well, he's sitting right there, you know, so why don't you do it? Get, get, put him in some makeup. So I, was, uh, I ended up as Freddie Cobbs. I wanted to just sit there and watch it and let other actors have the opportunity to do these roles. But he thro- I was thrust into the call of duty. You know? <laughs> but no, it, I, it, George got it, and he protected it, and he protected Mama. And, uh, and HBO was very open to hearing a new, fresh voice. And that's what they thought I was, and they, they allowed me to have freedom. Of course, there were challenges. Of course, it was like, wow, she's too good. Did, any, did anything really bad happen to her in her life? Yeah, what bad happened to her? She made bad decisions about men. <laughs> but no, she loved unconditionally. It's a relationship with she, between she and God that don't nobody else understand but her. So no, I ain't going to try to figure that out. She's that good. And did you expect the the reviews like the New York Times? I mean, they called your they called the play the tour de force. I mean, did you feel that... Did you know while you were making this play and film that you would have such a great response from the public on on telling this story? No, I can't. I can't. I can't get caught into that. Yeah. I just gotta gotta make sure that I am truthful, that I am courageous, that I am honest, and that I'm working my butt off to 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 bring the real thing to you. Yeah. I can't fake you. You know, this is the thing closest to my heart. This is my mama and all the people around me that said, go ahead, Junior, you're going to be something. you special, boy. And I'm like, why am I special? And I'm going to school, and they're calling me a half-breed. Why am I special? I'm fighting my way home because somebody said my mother's a dope fiend. Yeah. You know, and, but why am I special? Why do you think I'm special? And they just would tell me, you're special. And I was like, I don't know. And if I could halfway believe that, I could be successful. And, um, you know, whether I ever believed it or not, I, I, I'm not sure. But the fact is that they believed in me. Yeah. 
What, what kind of emotions went through you uh, watching your world come to life uh, as far as uh, working on the movie? I mean, like you said, you know, wait, we can't just have a bunch of people playing these parts that don't, you know, know what I've been through, what what any of the people characters in the story have been through. I mean, you know, I understand that you let go of it and you opened up to it and you started falling in love with, you know, the actors. But what emotionally did you go through watching the final film and just kind of being like, wow, this really just gave birth to my to, to this life? Well, you know, uh, it, it's still I still I cry about it. Still, you know, we won't get too deep into it. I'll start crying about it. <laughs> go ahead. But, it's okay. Uh, we, no, we I, ain't go, I ain't going there, man. <laughs> but, uh, uh, many... Many uh, a couple of days I had to walk off. You know, I just start crying, just walk off. You know, what was like one scene? The scene when really when my father comes and my mother and they argue and, and he said, "I want to be with you, nanny. Yeah. I just want to be with you." I remember that day, and then uh, and then and then the other scene that made me cry is when my father said to nanny, when nanny said, "That's his mother," and my father said, "You his mother, you his mother," and that made me cry. You know, because yeah. I remember that. I remember hearing that, and then they didn't see me there, and then I came in and he took me to the baseball game. But I remember him saying, are you his mother? And then Nanny said to me clearly, she said, you lucky, baby, you got two mothers. Instead of her saying, your mother's no good, she said, you got two mothers. And, and another one that made me cry is when, when the, the big box came for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And Nanny said, look what your mother sent you. Mm-hmm. And then all them years later, I found out Nanny did it. You know, because she wanted me to always love my mother. And I always did love my mother. Yeah. Though I didn't ha- I had a very fractured relationship with her until her pa- last 12 years of her life. Mm-hmm. The last 12 years of her life, she was clean, and she was taking crack-addicted and heroin-addicted girls off the streets of Pittsburgh. Wow. And um, was, was their sponsor and matron. And, uh, and was working in homes for girls and was like, it was just really wonderful. Though we still was trying to put it together, I was like, I didn't understand wh- why she chose heroin over me as a, a child. Yeah, I'm sure. And she yeah. said, baby, you know, I did the best I could, and just give me a little bit of credit because I left you in the best place I could leave you and look at you. Yeah. She said, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. That was the one thing I did right. And I, I heard it. And I hugged and kissed her and said, well, come on, come on. I got a Broadway opener. I want you to be there, Mom. And she came, you know, and, but didn't talk to nobody. She's used to, be, you know, being in that <laughs> element. She was quiet. But she was just, just glowing watching it, my, my birth mother. I'm sure it was just what a was that crazy like proud after? moment for her. Yeah, after I was saying, Mom, I said, Mom, you got to go talk to people. She said, no, I just want to see the way they come to you and talk to you and the way you, you sign autographs and you hug people and you don't say no to anybody and you... She said, "Wow, Nanny did a great job with you, you know." And she was—it was—it was cool, you know. It was, it was painful, but it was cool, you know. And you know, she—I don't know, you know—her history. She ended up getting uh, killed in the drive-by shooting in Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody shot at a, a person, one person, and ended up killing her. Mm. And uh, that's how her life ended. Well, and what kind of caused the change for her in her life to start, you know, to quit the drugs and to start working? I mean, because it kind of is like you. I mean, you're out there, you're you're working with younger children, and, and obviously she realized her wrongs and wanted to right her wrongs. What was the change for her? You know, when she when she was killed, the only thing I wanted was her writing. Because when she was in jail, she wrote a lot. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I got her writing, and her writing d- explains a lot of it. She, one, one of her poems, she says, I, I looked at the devil face to face, and the devil was me, and I didn't want to see him no more. Mm-hmm. So she went cold turkey and kicked it and, and straightened out her life and said, you know, little girls who, who have low self-esteem shouldn't feel that way. And she used to tell me stories about, about little girls. and said, She'd say, I hate my hair. I ain't got no hair. And Mama said, I'm going to get you some hair. <laughs> Said, well, I don't like my teeth. We gonna get your teeth fixed, <laughs> you know. So they want, she wanted little black girls to feel good about themselves, yeah. 
And that was her purpose. That's what drove her. And part of what drove her into what she was doing was she needed other people to make her feel good about herself. And that, and other people went into being a heroine also. You know, so... Uh, uh, but the, the light, the beacon, is Nanny. Because even in her addiction, she would come to Nanny. And Nanny would say, come here. Aileen, come on in this room. Just like a Patha and Carmen in the yep. movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. You go, hush, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't heard it all, and I didn't wade in. And Nanny <laughs> said that, too. I didn't wade in. I'm ready to rumble. You know, so I didn't wade in. And this is what I'm going to do. She said, I'm going to park this boy right here until you can show me you can do better, you know. And that's what Nanny told her. And it wasn't no more back and forth because I was going back and forth. And she said, no, I'm going to park him. I'm parking him because the boy can be something. And... You know, and, and I'm, I'm just so I'm just so blessed they had that confidence in me. Yeah, you know? and they were right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and, and after that, uh, after, after Lackawanna Blues, you continue to do a lot of more film work. Um, we have Devil's Advocates, Shaft. You mentioned Domestic Disturbance, American Gangster. Um, their eyes were watching God. What has been your favorite film to work on, and why? Lackawanna Blues. And I'm not saying it's because it was mine. It was a family reunion every day. Mm -hmm. Not one person walked on that set that didn't, I mean, that that didn't celebrate with us. Celebrate because they weren't just celebrating Nanny. They were celebrating Big Mama, Aunt Jenny, all the people in their houses, in their communities, in L.A., in Cleveland, in Detroit, and in Chicago, and in Tallahassee, Florida. There are these women. And in Ponce, Puerto Rico, and 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 in Guatemala, there are these women. These foundations and rocks in our community yeah. that let us know that life's going to be all right. And here's a shoulder for you. Unconditionally. Yeah, baby, you was wrong. You know, yeah, I'm mad at you and I might not even talk to you for two days. Sit down and get something to eat. Don't you never do that no more. And they're women. And they've never gotten their due. And so all these people was getting opportunity to celebrate their mama, their nanny. Yeah. And even like the medic on the set went and got his mother. And he was like. 60-something? His mother came 80-something years old. Mama, you got to see this. And looked around and not only saw black actors, but saw black grips, black electricians, black cameramen, black sound people. It was like, whoa, Latino this, Latino first AD, you know, a woman in this position. I mean, and it was like unusual. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the Hollywood people would stand around. I forgot him in Hollywood. I better be careful. <laughs> would stand around on the periphery and look and with their arms crossed in. You know, he's bucking the system here. He's jumping over people to hire people of color, you know, and that's going to get you in trouble. And it did. You did seen you see, did you you see seen as... another movie since Like I Want a Blue? No. no. Hello. That's my next question. What can be done to make that more of the norm? Yes. The power. The power base has to speak. Guys like me ain't got no power. It don't matter. They can, They they easily can control me. It's closing the door. It's closed the door. But can you close the door on the, on the complete Hollywood power base? People that are opening up movies bigger than Tom Hanks. People like Tyler Perry that's opening up movies bigger than Tom Hanks. What if Tyler and Oprah and Denzel and Sam and, 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 and Don Cheadle and, and, and me and everybody all got together? What have we got together? Yeah. Have we? That's what it is. Do you think? But do you base. think that there's a fear within the the community of us all getting together? Because there's always that stigma of only one can, can make it through. And we've seen that, you know, through the years. But do you and I understand what you're saying as far as there needs to be kind of like an ensemble of people that come together and kind of change the system. But do you think that there's a fear among the black and Latino community to even form together? No. Why would we fear? Why why, the power base that we have, the dollar that we have, the thing that people understand is money. And and if we come together, uh, it's just no need when you get content. When you're happy with what you got and looking, can look in the paper and say, mm, 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 but you don't feel it, you know, you don't have, it ain't no, it's no urgency. 
Right. You know, uh, things that are tragic create urgency. Trayvon created a certain urgency. And it'll die down. I'm saying people that were screaming and holler, it died down. We got to stay steadfast. The people in the civil rights movement didn't die down. They didn't give up until they accomplished. And we have to realize, I mean, Hollywood is, is, is a step away from reality. Come on. You know, I, I just left my hotel and took a walk and was looking around because I'm shooting Low Winter Sun in Detroit. A lot of these people don't know. All they do is what they read in the paper about Detroit. Right. They don't know the beauty as well as the pathos in Detroit. They don't know the, the destruction as well as what's gorgeous about Detroit. All they know is the paper said Detroit going bankrupt. This is so far removed. Mm-hmm. In the Mercedes with your locks down, in your BMW, in your Range Rover with your locks down, passing through the neighborhoods you don't want to. Don't get nowhere near them neighborhoods. They're so far removed from what America, the real people, are going through. New York doesn't allow that. Yeah. I live in New York. And you got to get on that subway and smell some urine. You got to bump <laughs> into somebody whose dreadlocks you don't like the way they smell. You got to see somebody else that shouldn't have dreadlocks because their hair shouldn't be dreaded. They're stinking. You know, and it's like whether you want to or not, it keeps you grounded into a certain reality. If I'm out here doing my TV show, I can lock them doors on that Range Rover. And that's very and true. go right yeah. on past South Central. Go right on past Watts. Go right on past Compton. No, 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 no. In New York, you can't. And, and now we're shooting in Detroit. And, and I love I love being in the middle of all those people. Now, Detroit, yeah, we've kind of we've we've talked about this. uh, We brought it up in one of our hot topics um, for another show that we do. That uh, I know that they've hit some bankruptcy problems in Mm -hmm. the city. Mm -hmm. How has that affected your production with with doing the show there? Is it it has you've seen have you seen any of that, or is it just completely different? It it, it doesn't even affect the production of the show in the city. Well, you know, the the money uh, for the show, Low Winter Sun. Uh, is coming from AMC and Edamall, right. you know. So that money is is they're on a mission, and and they're going to see their mission through. The good thing about it is this, you know, we uh, have an opportunity to employ a lot of people in Detroit, not just That's as actors, thing. but uh, in skilled positions, and uh, even the, res- the 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 money that spreads out beyond the production. How many of us got to put our clothes in the cleaners? How many restaurants are we in every night? The Whole Foods and the little corner market that we go into, the restaurants. And, and, and not only that, the museums that we're going into and the cars that we're renting. So we bring money into that economy. We're a good thing for Detroit. And don't be fooled. Detroit is on hard, hard times right yeah. now. But Detroit has a lot of upside. And they never talk about the upside of that chocolate city. It's some wonderful things there. It's some devastation there. And I'd be lying and be yeah. remiss if I didn't acknowledge that. But also beyond that devastation is the sort of the earth people with hearts huge hearts that loom over that city and they refused. I mean, we were shooting the other, they refused to see that city down for too long. We were shooting the other day in this, this neighborhood. It was so terrible, man. It was, it was, it was, it was painful to pull up in that neighborhood. And, and as we, we're going down the street to, to do a, dry, a car scene, we're backing up down the street and there's this woman sitting in her yard. It's like an empty lot, empty lot, burned out building, knocked down house, empty lot, and then this one house sitting there, barely standing there, and this woman is sitting in her yard in her chair with her barbecue grill on, smoke just coming from the barbecue grill in her, in her little pot where she's putting whatever she's grilling in. And she's <laughs> sitting there in a the lawn chair watching us back up, and every time we back up, she look at us. And I'm like, <laughs> she ain't moving out that house. That's her house. That's her neighborhood. She ain't afraid of nothing and proud to be right there. And I just look at mama over there. Mama making that barbecue. You know her husband going to come home from work. He's going to want that cue. You know? And so it, it, it just made me smile. That she's seen when that neighborhood was lively, and now she's still there. And now she's still there. But she's holding on, and we feel good 
you know, to, to, to be there and creating opportunities in Detroit. And what's, tell us more about the show. What, what will fans see you, see your role on doing and during this show? Low and the Sun uh, has its premiere August 11th on uh, AMC, right, fo- right behind Breaking Bad. We're in a, we're in a great posi- mm-hmm. position. Yes. And, and somebody asked me uh, earlier, how does it feel to be coming behind Breaking Bad? I said, we feel like, a, like a, um, Barry Sanders, the running back for the Detroit Lions, behind two 300-pound linemen. They're going to open up the hole, and we just got to come through running. <laughs> we got to come through running. You know, so we're in a great position. We have a dynamite staff, uh, incredible crew, amazing actors. And uh, I play uh, Lieutenant Charles Dawson. You know, I play a lot of cops. I play a yeah. lot of bosses, as you, you're talking about. But the, the unique part of, of this is that I've already been home, and you've seen my kids. We're on episode nine. All of a sudden, there's a human being, somebody care about something more than him, which is wonderful. You know, so we're hoping that the people, um, we have Mark Strong, uh, Lenny James, Athena uh, Karkanis, um, just a wonderful uh, David Costable, great, great acting team. I mean, extraordinary acting. I'll put this crew up against, I don't care who's on TV, where, come see us. Come, come, you want to see some, some, and all stage actors. Yeah. All theater people. So we discuss the scenes. We have a pro. We, we have a different pro, uh, process of the way we process this work. It ain't just like text, 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 text. Oh, I got a Twitter, 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 Twitter action. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're sitting there when it say cut. We're saying so. How long have we been together on this force? And and have I ever been in your house? And you know, just things that we have to come up with and say, yeah, yeah, we've been knowing each other and we used to be partners together. So you feel that in the show, the pulse of the show. Well, you, you're you're like a you know. You just have so many different things you, you can do. You're a writer, you, actor, director. You made your directing debut um, for all, one of August Wilson's plays in Gems of the Gems of the Ocean. Um, what was which do you which role do you like more? Do you like the acting, directing, writing role? Which which one is kind of something that you enjoy the most? Well, you know, they all have their qualities that that I, that I like. I, I love acting, you know, uh, because I, I get a chance to divulge, to express, to release things in me that I normally can't release and still be accepted. You know, if people could see, see how evil I could be sometime, I would never be accepted. If people could see how vulnerable I am sometime, they would say I'm a weak man. Yeah. If people can see, you know, uh, uh, how much I love women, they say that guy is promiscuous. They say, I can do this in, in an acting and genuinely kick it out and you still will accept me. So I love that part of acting. What I love about writing and directing is I create opportunities for other people. Mm. I can look around and hire some of the people I respect ultimately, uh, uh, with the ultimate respect, and, and I can actually say, are you available to do this? Could you come with me uh, on this journey? You know, I, I don't have a lot of money, but we're going to have a ball, and we're going to celebrate our folks mm-hmm. every day. And most people, when they're available, say, yeah. And is it a difficult transition to go from actor who, you know, you were working with directors who are telling you what to do to going to the director where you're overseeing what the actors are doing? Is that a difficult transition? Directors don't, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you're like, ah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't hire me then. Yeah. You know, you could tell me, you can balance it for me. You can give me, show me the path. Show me am I on the path? Is it truthful? Is it clear? No. I, as a director, I don't tell an actor what to do at yeah. all. I never, ever. I will ask you questions. Until you do what I want you to do, but I'm never going to tell you. That's how I hire people that are, that are that that know what to do, and hopefully I learn something from them. But I have a vision, and we're going to adhere to that vision. And simply, I'm not going to make you. I'm going to I'm going to suggest reasons uh, that would uh, that would lead to us having the same vision. 
Like, you know, I'm meeting an actress to, this evening for a play I'm directing in January. She's out here and wants to do it. And I just want to sit out, not auditioning. I just want to feel her personality. Can she take my energy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, is she the kind of person I want in the room? With a couple people I already have in the room that are amazing, you know, and they get me. Does she get me? I got to see, you know, style-wise. Somebody says, I don't want to work with Ruben. That's too much energy. That's too much energy. That's too much knowledge. Or, or he's an a- Like, I've worked with actors that feared me as an actor. Yeah. And I have to clearly say... I ain't acting. That's a different hat. <laughs> you know, I'm here to directing. I'm here to support what you're doing. I'm yeah. not here for you to look at me in your role or you in my role. I just I need to direct and handle this, and you handle that. And whatever you need, let me know so I can get that for you. And as far as directing, would you like to do eventually kind of move into doing television and, and, and films, um, big budget, even bigger budget films than than what you've already worked well, on? I think I think my agents want want it more than me. And so <laughs> they're pushing, I'm sure they they're do. Push, they're, push, they're pushing me there, and yeah. they're pushing me there pretty fast. And so um, I've agreed to, to start looking in that, in that respect. But, I, I, you know, it, it's hard for me to sit in a room with uh, 10 execs uh, to try to tell me about the vision that I have. Yeah. You know, when money, the higher the money is, the more heads in the room, the more mm-hmm. opinions. In theater, there's not a lot of money, so it's my opinion. Yeah. And I have one <laughs> or two people's opinions, and then I have to invite, you know, everybody else to have an opinion. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Inform me, and then let me make the best decision for our product. So, so, but in the room, when sometimes I'm sitting in the room as a writer, when I'm writing a movie for somebody, I'm looking to the left, and some, somebody's saying, okay, in this movie, you know, Parliament Funkadelic song should be right here. And I'm like, this movie takes place in 1972. Parliament Funkadelic came together in 1979. The Funkadelics were together in 72. They had an a, a album called uh, uh, America Eats Is Young, and their hit was Loose Booty. So Tear the Roof Off, the mother wasn't going on in 1972. Right, right. You're so I, the facts. You know, yeah, but I can't, but then I said, Rube, shut up. So I just look, I say, <laughs> I just write. I just write down. You know, like I'm writing a note and say, "This woman's crazy." <laughs> you know, or this guy don't know what he's talking about. But I write down like I took the note. Like, yeah, okay. But I'm writing like, well, what did you say? You know. So uh, sometimes I, I leave the meetings and I shake my head. You know, because these execs are, are 30 years old yeah. and wanting to do a movie about the 50s. Okay, do the research. Right. Yeah. And then now you, we talked about directing with your agents are kind of pushing for you to do even bigger budget projects. You've worked with some of the best directors in the game, Ridley Scott, uh, American Gangster. Um, with some of the directors that you have worked with, are you, do you, did you look at them and learn any techniques from their style? Or what do, you considering your, what do you consider your directing style? You gave us a little glimpse of it by saying that you let the actor kind of do what they do. But what's your personal style with directing, you think? Well, what I do is, 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 is I bring everybody in the room and want them to do what they do best. And I hire the best actors and the best designers that I possibly can. And I, and I want them to work their art. Everybody's an artist, and I want to see your art. Taking that all in consideration, then I have to say what really works for this event, for, this, for what we need to put out. What is the best we have of all this art, all this wonderful, wonderful talent? Um, but, <clears throat> yeah, every director that I work with, I'm always over the shoulders. I just worked with Ernest Dickerson on this and uh, Low Winter Sun. He's amazing. We just had a young brother, Anthony Hemingway, do our last episode. He was amazing. And we've had a lot of other amazing directors. And, I'm, and, and I sit there, and they see me standing there watching. And I take a little bit from everybody. It's, it's school for me, like we talked about earlier in this, in this, in this uh, conversation. Yeah. I said, I'm learning. And, I, and I'm not shy about me standing around. I, and I'll ask you a question. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll go to the director and ask a question. Why that shot? You know, some directors that really know me, they say, how are you shooting this sh- shot, Rube? I said, well, I'm, I'm coming in off a of two. Then I'm going to bring that person in on the three shot, and then I'm going to break it up into twos and ones. Mediums, I, don't might, I might not go to the closest. And they'd be like, no, nah, I think we need one close. You know, we, we'll discuss it. 
So, uh, uh, but I'm always learning. And I you've been it. in the business for over 30 years, and you've seen it transition from, from different stages. For the new up-and-coming generation that's coming out, do you feel like do you feel optimistic about their future in this industry as far as acting and becoming a director and becoming a pr- producer? Do you feel like there is more opportunities for them now because of people like yourself who have had who have helped set the way? Yeah, y- yes, absolutely, absolutely. There's a tremendous, tremendous uh, group of talent coming out now. All I want to make sure is that that, that that they remain steadfast in their responsibility to to us our images. Be careful about the images we project. You know, we have a responsibility to not always do good guys, but we have a responsibility to do real. And we are multifaceted. We are multifaceted. And I'm tired of seeing one image. You know what this is. Right. You know, no, I know what that is. You know, and everybody know what that is. Yeah. But when mama said, come here, baby, and hug me, you know what that is too, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, when, when Uncle Slim said, boy, don't, you don't, if you, I know one thing, you better not do that. Or you got something coming. We know what that is too. And we know something. Let me tell you about your grandfather. You know, your grandfather was the first person to own a store in Pittsburgh. You know, we that too. So let's don't get stuck in the one image. You know, when Harry Belafonte stands up and says something about the young artists and young stars, the Jay-Zs, you know, Harry Belafonte, man, has been to jail for us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You can't get on a hip-hop record and start saying, listen to your boy. That's Harry Belafonte. <laughs> I don't care how much money you have. Yeah. I don't care if, he, if you felt dissed. Maybe he said something you should hear. All them cats stood for something. Abby Lincoln and, uh, and, uh, and Lena Horne and, and, and uh, Sidney Poitier and, and those people, uh, Josephine Baker, I mean, they would go into Vegas and say, if ain't no black people in the audience, I ain't coming on stage. That's true. And they wouldn't get back to Vegas no more after that. There was a Josephine Baker uh, show in 1954 in Las Vegas. She came out and saw no black people sitting down. She said, if ain't no black people, I'm not going out. They went and dressed up the, a maid and the guy from the kitchen, a black, black couple, set them in the front row. She came out and did her show. And she didn't come back to Vegas no more. They wouldn't allow her back because huh. she stood for something. Man, that's some convic- conviction. But do you think that the, the way that this new generation is growing up and the exposure that they're getting and their lack of actually a lot of history knowledge, will they fight for things like that in the future? You know, will they fight to really make this a better industry versus just kind of growing with how it grows? What, I, I can't answer it. That's a question we need to ask them. Yeah. If anybody sees this or listens to this pocket, will you fight for that? Yeah. Are, do you have the conviction? Do you have... Uh, the cajones to stand <laughs> yeah. up for the people that stood up for us. They chopped down the weeds so we could stand on the putting green, man. We hear putting, and it still ain't that easy for us. Y'all know it. Yeah. You know, we we got to come up, and we have to we have to make a way out of no way. That's what we've done in this country forever. You know, but we have to come together. We have to come together. We have to trust each other. You know, uh, 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 this sister Ava Duvernier, uh, yeah. she's yeah. got her own company. She's, she's pushing these films out. Yeah. And and where are the people backing her? That's true. You know, and, and I said, maybe maybe God don't want me to be very, very rich because I'm just going to give my stuff away. I'll be like, yo, yo, baby, you need what you need, what you need. <laughs> you know, so I, I have to do my ad- advocacy in, in the way that I do it, I guess, you know. Well, if you could use one word to define you, what would it be? Integrity. Integrity. I, I listen. I just met you today, and I have to say, one hundred percent that that yeah, is like the perfect word. But there's for you. a lot of other one words yeah, that we, we, we won't say. <laughs> you, you big head man. No, no. Uh, a lot of words, but uh, that one I think uh, I'd be proud of. I think that sets you well. Um, well, Ruben, we're going to kind of wrap up the the interview today. Um, we have a couple other 
couple little fun questions I'm going to ask you really quickly, uh, just so your fans may may or may not know about you. What's your favorite movie of all time? Um, Cinema Paradiso. Mm-hmm. I don't even know that one, so I have to check that out. What you know? What year that came out? No, but it's dynamite. I got to check oh, that out. Oh my god, I cry every time. What are your thoughts on celebrities boycotting after the George Zimmerman verdict? We should. We should be heard. We should make a voice. And not only that verdict, all injustice. We should stand up for all injustice. Favorite Latin dish? Oh, man. <laughs> Just rice and beans, baby. Just give me some rice and beans all day long, boy. I'm saying. What would be your ultimate project to direct? The Harlem Renaissance five-part miniseries. Me and a bunch of us, not just me. I like that. And the last book that you read? The last book I reread. I had to reread Their Eyes Were Watching God. I reread it. I love that. Where can your fans find you? On Facebook, know. Twitter, down at the Instagram. Pub. Down at the pub. <laughs> He's like, y'all want me to get my address out on that? No, I am on Facebook, but, you know, my, Pam, my publicist is out there right now, Pamela Sharp, and she's probably saying, I told you you need a website. No, I, you know, I'm on Facebook, uh, I'm on Twitter, you know, um, and I'm at the theater <laughs> all the time. Well, I know where fans can find you. They can find you in August on AMC's new thriller drama Low Winter Sun you gotta check it out he's one of the leads on the show I'll be watching mm-hmm. uh, Jesse where can your fans find you at DJ Jesse J at Stuart Starlet and you can find me at Daryl Kristen thank you again for joining us Ruben we really loved having you today can't wait to check out your new series and uh, we'll see you guys next week from producers Maria Menounos Kevin Undergaro Bill Svitek Daryl Kristen and the entire BHL staff We would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL Online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.